Hello and welcome to Dr. Karazian's podcast about functional medicine, functional neurology, and functional neurochemistry. Dr. Karazian and his team host audio info sessions and talk with readers and researchers about Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, autoimmune disease, poor brain function, and chronic health disorders. You'll learn the root causes of these issues and how to improve your quality of life through diet, lifestyle, and nutritional therapy. You'll also hear success stories and how people just like you learn the tools they needed to optimize their quality of life. Okay, so today I'm with Allie Barton, who has an amazing story about using the autoimmune paleo diet to deal with um, organ rejection and taming that and managing that. So, Allie, you had a heart transplant. I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background as to what led up to that and how did you sure your symptoms? Sure. Well, I've always lived a very healthy lifestyle. Uh, my family is a bunch of exercise addicts and healthy food nuts. And so from a young age, I've been very active. I've been really into health and nutrition. Um, I was a psych- psychotherapist and a fitness instructor after I graduated from grad school. And so I was doing both, working pretty busy, busy jobs and um, started to notice some cardiac symptoms around the same time that I had been diagnosed with a few autoimmune disease, which at the time, there wasn't as much out there about autoimmunity. And so it was kind of like your doctor told you had an autoimmune disease. Here's the medication you take for it. And that was the end of it. Um, so I had been diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and also ulcerative proctitis, which is a form of ulcerative colitis, um, and was making a few changes with my diet to see if it would help. And, and I was noticing some improvement, but I did start to gradually notice that I was feeling slower in my fitness classes. I was starting to get really out of breath when I was doing simple things like walking the dog or climbing up a flight of stairs, which was really unusual for me. I was a runner for a really long time. I was teaching over a dozen classes a week. And so to get out of breath doing something that simple was just pretty out of my norm. Um, but I am <laughs> an avoider of things, all things medical. And so I just kind of put it off until it got so severe that uh, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was away for the weekend. And I really felt like I had an elephant sitting on my chest one night and decided to take myself to the ER. Um, and that night I was told that I had something called pericarditis, which they told me I likely got some kind of virus and it went to my heart. And at first they treated it with uh, high dose NSAIDs, which did nothing. And then ultimately decided to, teach, to treat it with high dose prednisone, which made it essentially go away. Um, and so it began this kind of roller coaster of being on prednisone for, you know, a few weeks and they'd taper me down and I'd feel great. And then as soon as I'd taper off it, my heart would flare up again. And nobody could really figure out what was going on. Um, except some doctors just saying, hmm, we think this is something that's autoimmune and it does well with steroids, so let's just leave you on the steroids and you'll be fine. And like I said before, I've always been into health and nutrition and fitness, and I was not satisfied with that answer. I wanted to find a root cause. I wanted to find, you know, I've been healthy my whole life. Why was this all of a sudden happening? What was going on? Um, so I, you know, I consulted with an immunologist who I saw for follow-up. I had been hospitalized several times like in the hospital and out of the hospital for a week, a week at a time in and out. Um, and finally I started doing a lot of my own research and piecing together the fact that I had these two autoimmune conditions that I knew about and that I'd always had gastrointestinal symptoms and begged my doctor to test me for celiac disease. And like I said, there wasn't a lot out at the time. Now I think there's a lot out there on gluten intolerance and celiac and um, with Tom O'Brien and all these different people that are educating about gluten. Um, but at the time, there wasn't really much. This was in 2010. 
Um, and so my doctor, a lot of the doctors laughed at me. They said there's no possible way that gluten could have anything to do with your cardiac symptoms. Um, but I, I did end up uh, testing positive for celiac disease uh, via a genetic testing and also via um, endoscopy. So at that point, I was happy with that answer. I thought this was, must have been what caused it. I think it was just slowly causing an autoimmune process in my body, but being undiagnosed for years. And I kind of went about my way and I felt a lot better being gluten-free. Like I said, I had kind of dabbed my toes in AIP for a while to manage some of the symptoms of uh, the colitis and also the Hashimoto's. And I had also been diagnosed with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And so I was kind of well-versed in changing my diet around at the time. And it worked really well for me then. And I just um, want to pause real yeah. quick. AIP, we, uh, autoimmune paleo diet for those yes, who, who don't Yes, autoimmune paleo. So yeah. just in a nutshell, taking it a step beyond paleo, which, you know, I eliminated grains, dairy, soy, but to take it the next step further was eliminating eggs, nuts and seeds and nightshade vegetables. Okay. Um, yeah. And definitely the biggies always for me were gluten, soy and dairy to hmm. get rid of those. And so I kind of, went on and off being very strict and being off it, but stayed paleo pretty much ever since the celiac diagnosis in 2011. Um, so fast forward a little bit, I got married in 2012 and my husband is about 10 years older than I am. So we decided we wanted to have children pretty soon after our wedding. Um, I knew I was going to need fertility help because I had not had my period in many, many years on my own without the birth control pill. Hmm. Um, I had stopped the birth control pill when I was 27 just because uh, of all the heart things, they wanted me to come off of it just because I was high risk. Um, and so I still had not got a period back. Uh, we needed to have four IVF cycles in order to get pregnant, um, which was just really traumatizing. And just I had two losses of those four cycles. Oh. The fourth cycle was a terrible cycle. We only got one egg out of it, which was just my body was really deteriorating at the time. Hmm. Um, and it was just this heart disease that was undiagnosed, but nobody could figure out. I was just very ill looking, very emaciated, wasn't really digesting foods. My lips were purple all the time, but I was fine. According to my doctors, I was healthy and I was fine. So that one egg did turn into a baby. <laughs> and so I got pregnant on that fourth cycle and knew pretty immediately that something was very wrong. Um, I had no appetite, but I was gaining several pounds a day, uh, which if you're in the heart failure world, you know that anything more than two to three pounds a day is really bad news. It's a sign that your heart is not pumping efficiently and fluid is accumulating in your body. Oh, so, so the, the I, weight gain was yeah. water, not fat. Water gain. Yeah, yeah, it was water gain. And so by week 10, I had gained close to 25 pounds, oh, which my is goodness. pretty abnormal early, that early in pregnancy. And you're small. You um, look like you... I'm small. Yeah. I'm small, yeah. I was probably about, um, I'd say, 110 to 115 pounds at the time. So oh, it was... It's like quarter of your weight. To, yeah, it was. And I started to have to tell people very, much earlier than I intended to that I was pregnant because... I didn't look pregnant, but I just looked so different because I was so puffy and inflamed everywhere. It was just so puffy. Um, and so my doctor would just kind of blow me off and tell me to take my diuretics and you're fine. Some people gain more fluid than others. Hmm. Um, and I started, the biggest symptom that was very bizarre to me was I would get this uh, vaginal swelling that was hmm. incredibly painful. Um, and I was still working at the time. I was seeing clients all day long. I'm a psychotherapist, a private practice psychotherapist, and mm. also a wellness coach. And so I was seeing my clients, but I would have to make it so that my legs were elevated all day long, or mm. I'd be in a lot of pain and swelling. 
just was getting really bad and impacting my functioning. And I couldn't take more than a five minute walk without being so out of breath and winded. And I just kind of kept pushing it off. I didn't want to worry my husband. He is a really big worry wart. We kind of are polar opposite personalities in that regard as he's kind of more hypochondriac and I'm just kind of, I'll be fine. It'll be fine. (laughs) So I was doing a lot of that and not complaining to him. And finally at around 20 to 21 weeks, um, I started not being able to hold food down. I'd eat a little bit, like a handful of food, and it would, I'd vomit it right back up. Hmm. Uh, and so I just finally, this is a little bit of denial, but I was thinking, well, maybe I have stomach flu. Maybe this is causing all this. I'm going to go to the hospital just to get some fluids down. So in the middle of the night, I was planning on going the next day. This was right before Thanksgiving, the week of Thanksgiving. Um, went to the hospital. My husband wanted to come. I said, so they're, they're just going to give me some fluids. I'll be back tomorrow morning. And then that was the last time I was home in about four months. Wow. So, yeah. So I went to a smaller hospital, the hospital that I was supposed to deliver my son at. And I had planned on doing a natural birth with a midwife. And they were starting to get nervous in the pregnancy. So I had, you know, consulted with maternal fetal medicine. But they saw me, did an echocardiogram, and immediately ambulanced me to a major Boston hospital. Um, what was, and, what yeah. was going on with your heart that they saw? They saw, well, they didn't tell me this at the first hospital. They just ambulanced me. But what they saw was acute heart failure. My heart was Whoa. not pumping. One, one third of my heart was pumping efficiently. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. yeah and all the stress so, of having a baby yeah. to pump blood yeah. to. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so yeah. So uh, I was ambulanced to the hospital and still very much in denial thought. We were supposed to go to Florida the week after for our last vacation before the, our baby moon. And my husband was saying, and I think we're going to have to cancel this trip. And I said, no, no, they'll, they'll get the fluid off of me. I'll, we'll be fine. <laughs> Worst case scenario, I'll be on bed rest. It'll be fine. Very optimistic. Right. <laughs> um, and found out pretty much the second night I was there that I had this very, very rare condition that was they'd never seen at that hospital, like I mentioned before. Uh, they'd never, ever seen it in a pregnant person. It's usually... Um, contracted as a parasite from the tropics or Central America and very, very rare cases seen as an autoimmune disease. And so in my case, it was an autoimmune phenomenon. Uh Um, And so again, same thing. I was in the hospital that week. We had planned on having a big meeting with all the head obstetricians and maternal fetal medicine and cardiac. And I thought, you know, they're going to tell me I need to be on bed rest, but you know, I can deal with it. It's fine. And what they told me at our big family meeting was that I their medical recommendation was to have an abortion and that likely the both of us would not make it out alive if I had this baby. Um, If I did go into labor that I would maybe need to be placed on a machine to breathe for me and I would not be able to raise my son. And was that a risk I was willing to take? Um, And, you know, the whole time during the pregnancy, we had already named my son. His name is Ethan. Um, this was 21 weeks. He was kicking. He felt so real to me and he was doing fine. So I was very sick, but he had never had any issues in there. And the first few days of being in the hospital, they had me on IV diuretics. I had lost 35 pounds of fluid and I felt amazing. I felt better than I had felt in years. I finally didn't have fluid on me and I just felt awesome. And so I said, like, I have to give this baby a chance. I feel great right now. If you can keep the fluid off of me, I think this will be fine. 
And I had a lot of angry people. My family wouldn't talk to me. My husband and my sister were the only ones that supported me. Um, My brother left the room when I said no to the doctors. He Mm. just said, I'm not, I'm not going to visit you. I'm not going to support you in this. My dad and mom ignored. So it was, it was very controversial um, in my family. And people finally turned around after they really realized this is a a trait in my, myself that people hate in my family is I am probably the most stubborn person you will ever meet. And when I make my mind up about something, I am not changing my mind no matter what. Right. Uh, and that is was very true for this situation. And it paid, I think it paid off because yeah. they did really well. And I did better than anybody ever thought I would do. And initially they had made me tour the NICU and said, your baby's going to be born at 24 weeks and he might be disabled and blah, mm. blah, blah. blah. Mm. And every week I went on, I did fine. As long as I had my IV diuretics in the morning and in the afternoon and they kept the fluid down. Um, but in the meantime, they were saying, you know, the only cure for this is heart transplant. And I, you know, put on my research goggles and was finding every single study I could find that gave a possible other option besides transplant. And there was one or two talking about different procedures, but very, you know, most of the articles said transplant. And so, again, was your heart you know, like pretty damaged at this point? Yeah. OK. Yeah. It yeah. had lost its elasticity. Uh. Uh, um, there had initially in 2010, there had been a big virus mass in it, which was the kind of the start of this disease. But that doctor at the smaller hospital had not caught that at the time. Mm-hmm. So but I was still very much in denial and thought, you know, once I have the baby, I'm going to be fine. There will be so much less pressure on my body and maybe I'll need a transplant in a few years. But there's there's going to be something less invasive before I need one. I'll be fine. And what happened is I went into labor naturally at 31 weeks. Uh, my water just broke because I had so much fluid in there. Um, Ethan did amazingly well. He was breathing on his own. Um, he did need to be in the NICU for seven weeks, which was great because I was still in the hospital. And so I could, my nurses who became such great friends to me would take me at any time of the day to go see him. And I was pumping around the clock. That was like my obsession to focus on was just feeding him and, and pumping every two hours for him. Um, which doctors told me I would not be able to do because the amount of diuretics I was on. And I still had a great supply and was able to get food to him, which was so meaningful for me um, just because I felt I had failed him in so many ways. And so to be able to just do that was, was really great. Um, And then, you know, he came out of the NICU at, you know, in March, he was born in February, came out late March and things started to go downhill really, really quickly for me. Uh, They did some big tests and just found like this girl needs to be transplanted sooner rather than later. And by transplanted Uh, means you needed to receive uh, a a new heart. heart. Yeah. Yeah. Getting a new heart. Mm -hmm. So the problem in New England is that the waiting list for heart transplant is so bad that you essentially need to be on your deathbed before you will actually get one. So since I was a young mom and very young and not eligible for something called a ventricular assist device, which is kind of a machine that will pump your heart for you. Um, it wasn't because of my condition. It, it wouldn't have worked for me. Uh, so they suggested that I travel to Florida or California where the list moves a lot quicker. And so within a few weeks, we packed our bags. We went to Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida. I waited 19 days in Florida and I got my heart you know, 19 days after getting there, which is pretty wow, remarkable. That seems pretty quick because I always hear mm-hmm. people are Very on lists for years. They're on this for years, depending on where you are. I also, um, like I said, I'm in a very small body type, and there are not many women or men of my size that needed a transplant. Mm-hmm. And so you, a, a small person like me could not get a 175-pound man's heart. I need oh. a person of my size. And so it's almost like there's two separate lists. 
So when I arrived in Tampa, I was the first person on the list of my body weight. Oh. I think it's something like under under 125 pounds or something like that yeah. is in a separate category and that you could also get a pediatric or gift as well. Wow. Wow. So, yes. Yeah, so I was on an IV in Florida that I had it on with me at home and changed my dressings and was on a pick line. And it was very hard nursing a baby and being on this IV and mm-hmm. jumping up out of bed with this IV attached to me to go get him when he was crying and just very, is, very stressful. This is before your transplant or after? This is before before transplant. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. before transplant. So, yes. Yeah, so I got the call. Um, I was nursing him in the middle of the night. My dad happened to be staying with me at the time. As I mentioned, family was rotating and um, got the call for my transplant at probably 11 or 12 at night and was got the transplant the next day at around, wow. I think, four in the afternoon um, and came out of surgery and just felt like I finally had, I mean, I was a little out of it for a few days, but <laughs> when I could, when I came around and could really talk to people, I just looked completely different. I had color in my skin. Wow. My lips weren't purple anymore. Mm. Um, they had me doing laps around the ICU and I just mm. felt incredible. It was really? really, really amazing. That's amazing. Did you learn anything about your donor? donor? I did. Um, I accidentally did because it was a news story actually. Um, and I, can't say much about it just because I haven't really talked to the I haven't talked to the family of oh, the donor, but it was I did know that it was a very tragic situation and it was a young woman exactly my age. Oh. So that oh. um, was it still sits with me very heavy most days. I think about that a lot, um, you know, a young woman with children. And that's oh. that's that's hard to know. Um, but I hope I you know, I wrote letters to the family. Uh, they have a choice if they want to reach back out to me. I don't think they will, given how tragic the situation was. But mm. I hope it gives them a little bit of peace to know that it went to another young mom, if that gives them any peace at all, hopefully. Yeah. So I hope that wasn't an insensitive question. No, like, no, okay. not at all. No. Nope. You know what? So many people. That's a question that I get a lot. So yeah. no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Okay, so you have your new heart. You're feeling uh, uh, amazing right away. Yes. And then uh, then I got C. diff in the hospital. <laughs> C. diff, of course. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> so uh, this is the sec- my second time with C. diff. And oh, so let's, let's explain C. diff really yeah. quickly because not everybody C. will know, C. know C. what that means. C. diff is a, a barrel of laughs. It is an infection in your intestines that you can very commonly get in a hospital setting. Mm-hmm. Um, it You know when you have C. diff. You have uncontrollable diarrhea, you you have fevers, you feel like death, basically. Mm. Um, and so, and it is treated with very, very potent antibiotics. Some people do not respond to the antibiotics and actually go on to need fecal microbiotic transplants. Mm-hmm. Um, I did respond to an antibiotic called vancomycin, which, but it very permanently messed up my gut flora, I believe. And so I've yeah. really been working since then to build up my gut flora, but I have dealt with systemic candidiasis and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth since that day. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so I yeah. really have worked to build up my gut health again, which has been difficult. It, and it's very controversial in the transplant world if you take probiotics or not. Luckily, I really? have doctors. Very controversial. Oh, most come? clinics, because it's a bacteria, and most clinics think that you should not risk putting any external bacteria in your body. My transplant team knows that I'm very well researched and that I've done a lot of research on this and that I've had such chronic stomach issues that they they do allow me to take um, probiotics. So I am on some rotating probiotics, uh, which is helpful for me, I think. I, I mean, I can but see yeah, that. Very but controversial. When you look at the immune system connection to gut health, you know, and gut bacteria, that that's 
Interesting. Yeah. The problem with transplant and having autoimmune disease is the whole goal in treatment of transplant is to make you have a very bad immune system. You do uh, not want a strong immune system. Uh, you don't want immune health. So any supplement somebody might take in the winter to not get a cold or if you feel a cold coming on, echinacea, um, you know, those sorts of things, anything for improving the immune system, ashwagandha, things like that. I can't take anything to improve my immune system. That's right. Yeah. Just so that is, that is the problem. When you have an autoimmune condition, you know, you are given multiple anti-rejection medications to suppress your immune system as much as you possibly can, which is why transplant patients are at very high risk for cancers, um, skin cancer, other cancers, breast cancer, um, because you just have, you have no immune system. And so that's why it's controversial because, you know, probiotics do improve the immunity in your gut. The gut is the basis for your whole immune system. And so some doctors will say, well, yeah, we want you to have a weak gut. Sorry, you're alive. You're going to have to deal with like having really bad GI symptoms. It sucks, but sorry. Um, I luckily have a team that will work with me um, and has been really receptive to me bringing in articles and studies. And um, I probably really annoy them because I do a little bit too much research. <laughs> but I like to add, I've learned throughout the years that I need to advocate for myself um, and I need to fight for what I need. And otherwise, I'm, you know, you're treated like every other transplant patient when I'm not. I have a really complex case with multiple autoimmune conditions is I need to, you know, figure it out myself kind of with the help of them. So. Right. Right. Um, okay. So getting back to the C. diff, you were able to kick that with the antibiotics, but then you got SIBO and yeast oh, yeah. infection. All of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. All of it. So, um, um, but, so you've been doing probiotics. I've done probiotics. I've done a lot of antifungals. Um, a lot of transplant patients are just on Nystatin long-term huh. uh, because you're at high risk for thrush and stuff like that. So I've been on Nystatin. I've been on Zuconazole. I've been on, you know, more natural things like, you know, propylic acid, Thorn SF722, things that won't interact. That's This is the hard part about healing gut health is there's so many amazing supplements out there now for SIBO and, and yeast. Um, that are herbal, but there are many, many herbal medications that I can't touch with a 10 foot pole because right. of potential interaction. Hmm. So I have to be very, very careful about that. Um, it's certain, um, cytokine pathways. I don't know if I just said that right, but the, yeah. the CPY 450 pathway, mm-hmm. anything that potentially interacts with that, which is so much, <laughs> right. um, I can't take. And so that's, that's frustrating because I feel like I'd, I'd have a lot better gut health right now if I could do some of these, but. I try to make the best that I can and do as much research as I can on the ones that I can take safely um, and run it by my team to make sure that it's okay. Right, right. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So you started, your body started to reject the heart? So I have had multiple episodes of rejection. The first episode I had was actually in the hospital. There's three levels of rejection. One is one, uh, zero is what you want to have. That means there's no rejection. You're doing great. One is there's some mild inflammation there. There's a little bit of rejection. They may not do anything. They may just watch it or they might adjust your prednisone levels. Level two is bad. That's not good. It is usually treated with some kind of infusion or a high dose steroid pulse in the hospital. Level three is acute and you are at risk of death. So level three, you really don't want to get. Level two is what I had immediately. I also had that last Christmas. Um, Now, I forgot a little piece of the story to add was that um, we just had a second baby via surrogate uh, in May. So I did the IVF last April um, and my surrogate got pregnant in uh, September. 
last year, our baby was just born in May. So she's four months old. So I started having, uh, we got pregnant in September and I started having all of these scares last year with um, the high grade rejection, which I was hospitalized for in December. And then I started having these episodes of something called antibody mediated rejection, uh, which is a more serious kind of rejection because oftentimes it can require things like uh, plasma phoresis in which your own plasma is taken out of your body and replaced with donor plasma in the hospital or photophoresis. Um, or other, the IVIG, different, like very highly invasive treatments that usually require hospitalizations. And so this was all happening right before my baby was born. Um, and I was really freaked out. It just turned into this, like, was this the best idea to have another baby? Oh my God, I had been doing great. And now all these things are happening. And how long am I actually going to stay alive? And just like kind of panic mode a little bit. Um, and so I decided after the, I had another scare in April with antibody rejection that, you know what? I am going to try. AIP again, because I keep having this antibody issue. I keep having rejection. My body is super inflamed Mm -hmm. and rejection is inflammation. Mm -hmm. And rejection Mm -hmm. is also my body identifying this organ as something foreign, which is what autoimmune disease is. So why would AIP not work for transplant rejection? Mm -hmm. And what were you kind of, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'll let you finish your thought, but then just kind of tell us what, what you were eating at that time. Sure. Well, just I was just to say, like, it was so simple in my head of like, why did I not think of this before? And I think the reason why I hadn't is because AIP is something that is very easy to do when you feel like death. Yes. When you feel like you can't get out of bed and I am willing to do anything and I can't take it anymore. And that's where I had been with my colitis and with Hashimoto's. That's why I had done it in the past. This time I was feeling pretty good. Mm. So you have the rejection. And yes, a serious rejection, I noticed because I'll gain a lot of weight rapidly. Um, I'll be a little bit more tired. But in general, I was feeling really good. I exercise frequently, taking care of my kids, I'm doing great. And so it's hard to do a very, very restrictive diet if you're not positive that it's going to do something, A. And B, if you're already feeling great, it's like, why really restrict yourself? So Very common, I think. Yes, yeah, for sure. Um, but April was kind of my last, like, you know what, I've got to try something. Well, it can't hurt to try this. I'm just going to try it because I'm so freaked out by this. Um, what I had been eating at the time, uh, not super far from AIP. I was doing paleo, but not super strict. You know, if I was at a birthday party and, or if it my my son's birthday, for example, I got gluten-free cake for his birthday party. I would eat a piece of gluten-free cake. It wasn't grain-free. Um, you know, very occasionally stuff like that. Or if I was out and someone at a place, you know, at a restaurant or something that had gluten-free stuff and there was, you know, an appetizer that I wanted to try, but not, but generally really sticking to paleo. But the thing that I was having a lot of still were eggs, nuts, Mm. seeds, and nightshades. Mm. And so just wanted to see if I pulled it all out and really was strict. Would it make a difference? Yeah. Um, And so I started that in April. They wanted me to have a follow-up biopsy in July. Uh, the baby was born in May. And so I was just kind of trying as best as I could with a newborn to keep to an it was very crazy, but to keep to AIP with a newborn is not a yeah. cup of tea. But no, it's, it's a lot of work. It is yeah. doable. It's a lot of work. <laughs> I did also do the elemental diet at one point in there because oh. my SIBO had um, come back again. And that was actually helpful having a newborn and doing elemental because it just was easy. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. There was no preparation. It was, and for That's those who don't know, diet. elemental yeah. is a liquid. Yep, it's a prescribed liquid formula. Um, designed to eradicate bacteria. And you were okay with uh, energy-wise and mm-hmm. hunger-wise with the elemental I was, diet? Huh. I was. I was. Yeah. I was having one piece of meat or fish at night. Uh-huh. Um, I did try the first day just the shakes 
Um, I noticed a lot of thrush. Um, and so I started alternating between the prescribed physician's elemental formula with just having collagen powder and um, beef organic grass-fed beef protein powder, which I know isn't, you know, typically what people do, but I candida was coming back and I could tell. And so the combination of doing that for three weeks and then having either a baked piece of chicken or fish for dinner seemed to, to do the trick. And I really felt very well after that. It, it worked very well for me. I'll be darned. Um, yeah. So just giving my digestion a break. Um, and now I actually moderate a um, elemental diet group on Facebook, even though I'm not doing it anymore, but I kind of just moderate the group and yeah. that's on there well, was if like, anyone's interested in that. Sounds like yeah. it was a life or death diet for you. So. It was, it was, yeah. and it was, it was helpful and I would do it again if I needed to. It, it actually almost feels like a relief sometimes to not have to worry about food prep. It just, oh, it's totally. there, it is what it is. Yeah, I kind of liked it. So, and I'm such a creature of habit. I honestly don't really care. You know, my husband actually does all our grocery shopping, which I, I'm very lucky, but he's much more like likely to want to try new things and I'm just happy kind of with the same thing. I don't really care. <laughs> so right. That's how I that, am. that makes it a little bit easier for me. I've never been such a huge foodie that right. AIP was traumatizing for me. It just, it is what it is. And yes, I miss having bites of things here and there, you know, as a treater, being able to go out for frozen yogurt or something like that, but it's, it's fine if it's going to, and I'm not, you know what the thing is, is I am certainly not a hundred percent. I try my best, um, but slip ups happen, especially, you know, the stress of kids and uh, the, the perpetual mom problem of cleaning up after your kids scraps, yeah. um, which I, I am working my best on not doing, but it can be, be sometimes you just pop something in your mouth before you even realize it. <laughs> that so, last bit of gluten-free um, waffle yeah, or whatever. That's um, exactly <laughs> what it is. And we are gluten-free in my house uh, because we tried for a while uh, when I was first diagnosed to have my husband have gluten be not and it just I kept getting cross contaminated yeah. and so at home we are in our house so any anytime I I've never gluten is a never for me I've, I've never cheated right. with gluten I've never you know it's more so things like dairy um, or a bite of ice cream or something like that that I've done but I really especially since what happened so I, I started to go I'll go back to you know in April I decided to try this in July I had my annual uh catheterization, which I go under anesthesia. They do a right and left heart. They basically take tissue out of your heart. And I've had this done almost monthly since my transplant, since I've had so many complications, except I don't go under anesthesia monthly. They just do a right heart catheterization where I'm awake and they go in through my neck with a catheter. And it's not pleasant, but it's doable. Um, And so I also had a stress test, which was so much better than last year at this time. Um, and scored really well on that and just felt really good. And they came back and said, you know, we actually couldn't believe how different your samples looked. There are no antibodies. There's wow. no rejection. There's no inflammation. Whatever you're doing. How long were you it. on the and AIP point, diet when that happened? Uh, April, May, June, July. Three, so months. three months. So three months of AIP three and months. they were mm-hmm. like, whose heart is this? Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So that to me was very powerful. Um, and at that point, I said, like, people have yeah. to know about this. I'm in this transplant group on Facebook with 5,000 people um, from all over the world. And I've written posts, you know, has anybody heard anything about diet? And huh. nothing, nothing at all. There's nothing online. There's no information online. Wow. Um, it is mind boggling to me that people can't correlate the fact that rejection is essentially inflammation. inflammation. 
That's what it is. And if you can keep inflammation down in your body, you are less likely to have rejection. And nobody has put those puzzle pieces together. And I can't believe that. And so I am here (laughs) to hope that somebody that is more, you know, known in this health world, because I'm just kind of like a little fly on the wall here, can actually do something about this because I actually have shared my story in my Translink group. I've had several people reach out to me. Um, oh my God, I've had chronic rejection. I'm so curious. What are you doing? What can I try? And there are people who are on the standard American diet in which I say, you know, like this is a big dietary change. If you can just start, I kind of will go back and forth and message with people. Like if you can just start with gluten, soy, dairy, and sugar to keep that inflammation down, see how that goes. Try going gluten-free. See, you know, cause I think it is a pretty big jump oh, for sure. someone who's eating a McDonald's every day, you know? Um, but I do know some people who are really like yeah. desperate and they will, they'll just go. Right, out right. And, um, and so this is more recent. So I haven't really had feedback from anybody else, but I did um, just have a girlfriend of mine who I speak with pretty frequently um, who lives in Texas. And she just had her doctor tell her that she should come off of gluten and that she thinks he thinks that that will help with her inflammation, her antibodies. Wow. And so that was like, wow. yes, some doctors are maybe getting this, which is yeah. great. Um, so yeah, so I, my hope is that, that somebody can do some kind of study on this. I think it's really important and it is such a hard life to live as a transplant patient. And if there's something as easy as changing your diet to prevent complications, then, you know, sign me up. The problem that I'm seeing is that people in the transplant world, a lot of people feel very robbed of their life, um, which I understand. I, I do feel shift of my 20s and having a happy, healthy pregnancy. It it is very sad and it is a loss that I will have to grieve always. So the difference between me and maybe some other people is that a lot of people will be like, you know what? I've lost so much in my life. I have, I've lost so much joy. Just let me eat the diet I want to eat. You know, like I've already been robbed of so much. Just let me have my cake, you know? Interesting. Um, and to each his own, to each his own. But I think the people that are saying that are not the people that have had chronic issues with transplant like mm-hmm. I have. Um, I think the people who have really been in and out of the hospital a lot, who really fear their longevity and how long they'll be here with this organ before needing another one. Because the bottom line is transplants don't last mm-hmm. forever. If you're young and you're tra- transplanted, it can last 10 years. It can last 20 years, maybe 30 if you're lucky, but generally on the shorter end of it. I've had such a different experience with functional medicine doctors than I have with regular doctors, such that I just don't, anything having to do with nutrition, and this goes for like, same with my children's pediatricians. I don't listen to anything having to do with nutrition. I have my, like I said, I have a four month old. I was just told at her four month visit that I should start feeding her cereal. I was like, okay. Nope. <laughs> la, 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 la. And you know what? The thing is, is I used I used to say, um, okay, and then not do it. But now I've been standing up and saying, you know what? I don't think that's a great idea. I don't feed my kids cereal. I don't do grains for them before they're a year old. Um, I started my son on things like sweet potato and carrots and veggies and fruits. Um, I just I don't think their guts are ready for it, and I think it's setting them up for like a lifetime of damage to their stomach. Mm-hmm. And she was really open to hearing that and listening to and listening to what I had to say. I don't know if it soaked in or all if she listened, but I just um, I've learned so much over the last few years. Um, I'm not working now, but when I do go back to work as a therapist, I really really want to refocus my energy on people with chronic health issues, which I was doing some of, huh. and I do a lot of mentoring of transplant patients now. But I just look at the lack of support that I got psychologically in the hospital 
you know, all of these years in terms of like my chronic illness. And, you know, part of the problem is, is that I put on a really good happy face. Um, I'm always making jokes. That's kind of like my defense mechanism. And so I think people see it really as like, oh, it's fine. Right. She's great. She's smiling. She doesn't need the psychologist to come in and talk to her. Um, no. And I actually, you know, I went, I had something called ICU psychosis, huh. um, which I had never heard of until I was talked to about it after. But you're given, I think it's a thousand milligrams of prednisone right after transplant for a few days. And then I got stuck in the ICU for um, just about, a, usually, usually people are there two or three days. I was there just over a week because, um, there was somehow air got in my, my, something happened with air getting into my stomach and bubbles getting into my stomach and they didn't want me to leave the ICU until that was resolved. And so they, I couldn't eat and I couldn't drink and I just went crazy. Huh. Um, they almost called security on me for a fight. I got in my husband about a protein bar and I was trying to manipulate nurses to bring me ice chips. I mean, it was really bad. I was wow. crazy and I, I had no clue. And so afterwards I learned about this thing called ICU psychosis um, I've never had any kind of psychosis before, but high enough prednisone will do that to you. Yeah. Um, and so all these things that like people need to know about that have health issues and there's just, just this very missing area. It's a missing area. Um, mm. and being a health coach and a, a psychotherapist, it's kind of like a nice area for me to focus on just because I had been doing that before. I've been meeting with a lot of people with autoimmune disease, but now kind of this next area of transplant and chronic health issues is it's a big deal for me. Are transplant patients not given any kind of nutritional protocol or advice? I wasn't. You're basically told you can't eat um, grapefruits, green tea, raw fish. It's basically a pregnancy diet and yeah. that's your only guideline to uh-huh. And so, and, and in the hospital, you know, for you, especially, you're, you know, finding this out about your diet and how helpful it is. I mean, if you do go to the hospital, can you even eat anything there? Yes, okay. I can. Actually, um, they do. The, when I was hospitalized during my pregnancy, I actually kept getting gluten. Um, oh. And so they had, a, this is pretty amazing. They had a private shopper go to Whole Foods for me every few days and get me whatever I wanted at Whole Foods to make in my room. Wow. Which was pretty awesome. That's awesome. Is that standard or do you think you just got lucky at your hospital? I think I got lucky because I was in the hospital for months. I think for patients who are chronic and it's really hard situations and and they have health issues or health allergies, they'll do that. So that's why they did it was because of my celiac. Um, But, yeah, I I think, you know, at the hospitals, it's not like it's great, but they have what I typically would get was this is before I was doing AIP. I'd get an omelet for breakfast um, and I usually have like I was also having some yogurt at the time. I was able to eat yogurt during my pregnancy. So like maybe some yogurt with some fruit um, and some sunflower seed butter or something like that. And then I'd always have a big salad. Now, granted, it's not a great salad. It's going to be an iceberg salad with tomatoes and cucumbers and uh, you know your typical salad but i get you know some kind of meat or fish on top and then a side of butternut squash or sweet potato or something like that and just olive oil and vinegar for so it's doable um you can kind of it's nothing really set on the menu that i would particularly order but i kind of would do a build your own salad type thing and make use of that right so how long since you started the AIP diet, how long have you been on that now? And what is your, you know, your checkups looking like for your heart? Like how? So I've been doing it since April. 
this this last April since I had that last scare. So what and are so we at? We're at September and so yeah. um, almost six months. Almost right? six April. months. Okay. Yeah, almost six months. And like I said, I have not been 100%. I have had a few flips here and there, but I'd say for the most part, I'm doing a pretty good job. Um, I do do a lot of smoothies, um, because I'm still struggling with, you know, digestive issues and that really breaks it down for me and makes it easier for me. So I tend to do smoothies, um, for quick, if I need something quick and on the go, if I'm doing school drop off for my son or something like that. Um, I found different epic bars. I also try to keep to low FODMAPs. I forgot to mention that just because oh. of my SIBO. Um, and Please so I explain found that quickly. Low FODMAPs. Low FODMAPs is, um, Fermentico, Oligo, Mono, Dye, Polysaccharide. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's a form, form of carbohydrates that are in certain, uh, fruits and vegetables and in gluten and, um, different sweeteners and all sorts of different things. Um, but things with a lot of, you know, high FODMAPs, for example, that I stay away from or I try to is, well, obviously some, a lot of grains are on there. Gluten's definitely on there. Lactose is on there, but things like, um, apples and onions, garlic and cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, like very cruciferous things that you could imagine would be difficult to digest. Um, and so the the toughest on those is going to be garlic and onions in terms of flavor um, beef jerky bars yeah. and eating out and those sorts of things so i did find a few flavors of epic bars that do not have garlic and onions and oh. so i definitely stick with those mm-hmm. um, and i really like those for Christmas. and so and i'll do smoothies i use um either grass-fed collagen i do a lot of gelatin every day and as oh. a side note um i have basically no scar where i was transplanted and if you look at pictures of transplant scars People have these really big zigzag, deep, deep scars, and people ask me what I did, and I didn't put this connection together, but I do think that eating collagen and gelatin every day has essentially made me have no scar. Well, that's amazing. So I will say that. Wow, you must have amazing like has, skin and hair also, <laughs> or uh, it, nails. It I mean, good. it is my, my yeah, everything. I think it definitely is helping with all of that. Yeah. Huh. Um, so I'll do that in the smoothie, or I also do um, grass-fed beef protein powder um, for protein Um, or, you know, very occasionally I'll use pea protein powder, um, like an organic pea protein powder. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for dinner, we pretty much, um, I cook a lot from the Healing Kitchen cookbook. I love that book. There's Hmm. some really great sauces in there that everyone in my family likes. So what I do is I'll make, I'll batch make a lot of the sauces. Like there's an AIP marinara sauce, there's an AIP barbecue sauce, and a pesto sauce, all these really awesome recipes. So I'll make a big batch. And then basically all I need to do is cook up meat or fish, and then I can use the sauce to, like, pull it out of the freezer if I've batch made it. And, and um, sometimes I'll add different things for my husband and my son, like um, potatoes or they eat rice or gluten-free pasta or something like that, um, or sweet potatoes. Um, and I'm pretty low carbohydrate just because of the SIBO and the candida. Um, but I'll do a little bit of butternut squash or right now is the season for all the amazing winter squashes. So I'll do that kind of as a carbohydrate or beets or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I eat for fats. I eat avocado. I eat a lot. I love coconut butter. I eat a really good amount of coconut butter. Hmm. Um, those are probably the two main sources that I really like coconut oil. I cook with coconut oil. So um, I feel like I'm getting a pretty, pretty well-rounded diet. Um, I do, in terms of not sticking 100%, I do still have some organic coffee. 
um, because I don't think I have a reaction to coffee and I have a newborn baby. So I need something through my day. Um, I'm a stay at home mom with two kids. I need a little bit of something to get some cups. Um, but I have at most a, I, I mix a half and half cup of the, um, organic decaf and organic regular. And some days I do teach, you know, um, just to mix it up and try not to be too reliant on the coffee. But, right. um, and then once in a while I will do some good quality of sugar, dark, dark chocolate. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just the soul needs feeding every now and then too. A little bit, yeah, a little bit <laughs> yeah. for sure. For and sure. the healing kitchen—that's uh, Sarah Ballantyne. She's a popular um, AIP author yes. and and researcher. And the other, there's one other author. Hold on, just not to find the other author because I think there's one main person that wrote it. It's Sarah kind of co. Um, Elena Haber. Elena Haber. Author. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of amazing. So you're going back for checkups monthly, you said? Um, I, no, not necessarily. Not since that last biopsy. Okay. Um, I haven't gone back since then. I'm not sure when my next check will be. I think some, you know, sometime within the next month or two, I will need to go back, um, to get some more testing done to see how things are going. But I feel great. I feel really good. I feel high energy. Um, I feel like when I eat this way, I'm less swollen. I'm less puffy and inflamed. You can definitely see it in my face. Um, You know, I I can see even in a week of, I hate the word cheating, but like I'll just, I'll use it. And like I said, when I cheat, it's not exactly like I'm going out for ice cream sundays, but maybe we have a family party and I have like a great cookie or something like that. Right. Um, It looks so, uh, it it looks so harmless just sitting there, you know, it's like, (laughs) they do. And you kind of think you have that little self-sabotage voice. It's like one is not going to kill me, Um, which it likely won't, but I feel it. I feel a difference when I do it. I see it in my face. I see it on my body. I feel less puffy and inflamed when I stay on more on better track. So um, that's enough motivation for me. And, you know, part you know, I have gained a significant amount of weight being on steroids this long, um, which I'm very fortunate in the fact that I have some friends that gained upwards of 80 pounds on steroids. And we're talking about, you know, 15, 10 to 15 pounds for me, mm-hmm. um, which feels like a lot on my body because I'm small. But it, yes, it, it definitely like fluctuates a lot based on if I'm sticking to eating foods that are inflammatory for me or not. Right. Um, and it is hard with kids. It's really hard with kids. I'm not going to lie. It's not even just... I think when you're stressed and you're on the go all the time, it's 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 hard to just not pop more convenient things into your mouth. But I just do the best that I can um, and try not to beat myself up too much about it. If I veer off track a little bit, it's the best I can do. Well, it's amazing that you've had a heart transplant. You've had a lot of issues with rejection. You have two kids. You're running a marathon, training for a marathon. You've written a book. It's- <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually amazing you know that what? you're doing so I well. This, the, the race that I'm doing on Monday is a 10K, and I have learned okay. this. I'm constantly learning lessons about my body, that my body uh, is not liking longer distance running right now. I feel more inflamed. I feel puffy. I feel like it, it does give me some kind of cortisol reaction because I feel puffier. Sure. And so I'm going to run my race on Monday. Um, because I, you know, I committed to it and I'm, I'm winning this award, um, that they're presenting me with. And that's such an honor. But I think that when I stick with running, I'm going to do shorter distances, you know, two to three miles or four miles at the max feels good. But anything more than that, my body does start to have a stress response to. And I think I've always been that way. I do better 
on less high impact. And the problem is, is I love exercise. I love, I work out with a fitness group of moms called Mama Beast. It's high impact. It's a lot of, it's like a boot camp and I love it, but it is another stress, you know, it's a stressor for my body for sure. So I just really have to keep an eye on that for myself. Well, Dr. Krausian, because he lives in San Diego and there's a lot of athletes that live down there and train down there and Ironman, he's, he's treated a lot of um, serious athletes and overtraining and over exercising are, um, just endemic to this population and it it really raises inflammation. So, I mean, it's great that you can see that. And I will fully acknowledge that I I do it. I like, I have this thing and I've always had this thing where if I'm feeling good because I love exercise, I will completely overdo it. Um, And I'm working on that just because I feel good doesn't mean I have to go balls to the wall all the time Um, because it does. You're right. It absolutely raises inflammation in my body. I can see it. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to, um, after the race is over, kind of coming back to a little bit more yoga, a little bit more slower walking, um, which my body just really appreciates a lot more. Yeah. And what is your award related to your journey around this? It is. It is. Yep. So it's, um, it's called the Marie uh, Fitzherbert Award for Perseverance, and they present it to one athlete each year who's overcome, you know, involved in the community and has overcome some adversity in her life, um, and is running kind of despite what's gone on. And so I just found out last week that I'm being presented with this. So I'm very excited and very, very honored. That's that's great. Yeah. And Thank is your you. book also about your journey with this? The book is about the whole journey. So the book really starts with kind of how I started to in today's story with the journey with infertility all the way through, you know, what happened throughout the pregnancy transplant and after the surrogacy. Sorry. Fussy four-month-old here. Yeah, so it's about kind of my whole journey and really learning to advocate for yourself as a patient and not to say, you know, don't listen to what your doctors are saying, but you need to honor and listen to your body and listen to your gut. Um, You know, I really in my gut felt like my son was going to be okay. I was going to be okay. Uh, I had one review on Amazon. I had a lot of really great reviews on Amazon, and uh, I tend to focus on... (laughs) The one negative thing someone course, said, but yeah. somebody, of course, because it's hard not to, and yeah. you read all your own reviews and stuff, but somebody said, you know, this is a really good story. Allie is described as, as selfless, you know, in the book, but I really think she's selfish and um, she's really lucky they both came out alive. And to me, that just felt like, you know, I hope I don't come across that way. I don't, hope I don't come across as a very naive person who just ignore what my doctor said. But based on, I took all the information I had based on my son's, um, his ultrasounds and all the health information I had so far and how that I was feeling. And I really just went with my gut that we were going to be okay and was willing to change my mind. If things really started to go downhill really quickly, um, I could make that decision. But at the point in time, I just had to listen to my gut. And so the book really is about advocating for yourself, um, whether you think you know something's wrong with you and nobody's listening to you, which was the case for me and really fighting for yourself or just, you know, getting a diagnosis and making the best you can of it and, and trying to find out what's going to work for your body. And that's, that's so important to me to pass on to other people. Well, I was thinking about this topic, why there hasn't been more attention. And I, I think it's just such a sensitive area with so much risk and so much liability that it's um, too dangerous maybe for professionals in the field to rock the boat in any way, even though you've had such amazing results and all the science is there regarding inflammation and, inflammatory triggers in our diet and in our environment. Um, I, you know, I, I guess I, I just understand that uh, there's going to be a lot of fear around giving transplant p- 
people advice of any kind that right. need to deviate in any way. I yeah. think I feel that way in certain aspects. Like there are certain, like people are starting to say, for example, that um, cannabis and CBD oil might be this groundbreaking treatment and transplant reduction. And I can understand that. That is a risky study to do because what if it doesn't work? What if it actually, you know, injures people? Diet, I see, this is how I kind of saw in April, is like, I'll, I'll do it for a month or two. I'll just see what happens. Yeah. You know, what harm can it really cause? So I don't think you can really hurt yourself by doing AIP. I don't think you can cause rejection or cause health problems. So for anybody, sorry, for anybody that is trans- struggling, you know, with any transplant, you know, or health issues that you think it might potentially make a difference, just try it. Just try it for 30 days or 60 days and see if you feel better. And, you know, if it doesn't help, if you don't feel better, then go back to what you were eating. But it really, if you feel that desperation like I felt, it really can't hurt. And I guess that's a message I want to get across to people. Right. And I'd love to see a study done on this. Yeah, for sure. And have you talked to any other um, transplant patients who've done the diet? So I recently put my story out there in my transplant group, and I have a few of my friends that are just starting to Uh do it. So I can report back in a few months and see how people are doing. Um, like I said, I had the friend that this doctor just told her to get off of gluten. I've been trying to help her. Um, I really try to talk to as many transplant patients as I can, mentoring like newer transplant patients or people that are about to be transplanted. Um, so, you know, getting that message to people that, you know, like if you are dealing with some chronic issues there, you could try changing your diet and see if you get rid of some highly inflammatory foods, if that might help. And people are open to hearing that, I think, for the most part, right. especially right. women. I find that women... Um, for some reason, my friends that I've spoken to, I have a lot of male friends that are just, nope, not doing it. That's too <laughs> no. crazy. And then a lot of females that are like, I'll give you a try. And I don't know if that's wrapped up in, you know, body image or people wanting to lose weight or whatnot. But if they're willing to try, they're willing to try. And that's great. Most men sort of seem to get started because their wives make them or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, and you had a history of autoimmune disease. Is there autoimmune disease in your family? Um, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. My dad also has celiac and he has Crohn's disease. Um, my grandfather has rheumatoid arthritis. My brother has ulcerative colitis oh. and likely celiac, maybe celiac. Probably, uh, yeah. <laughs> we won't go there, probably. Um, and yeah, so it is definitely, definitely in the family. Well, it just um, really illustrates how important it is. You know, there's ways to screen for this now. We have Cyrex Labs. They do a really thorough yes, panel. Yeah. And if you're a yeah. transplant, you know, if you're somebody who needs a transplant, I would think it's really good to know if you're dealing with some autoimmune right. issues. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And like I tried to do research on that and there's not a lot of data on, you know, do people who have autoimmune disease and transplant tend to do poorer, you know, in terms of their longevity because of what autoimmune disease means, you know, won't I be more likely to have rejection because and nobody has ever been able to answer that question for me, but I've kind of been proof in the pudding, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's such a natural (laughs) question when you understand these mechanisms. And then you got to look at like breast implants and. Yeah, you know, absolutely. All these things. Even now, more recently, tattoos, stuff like that, anything foreign, yeah. you know, that they're putting in your body. Yes, yes. No breast plant implants here. <laughs> <laughs> Give your body just, your body has no, to deal with. <laughs> no more surgeries if I can help it. Yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is such an amazing story. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel it's important to, I, I mean, I guess, for somebody who has had a transplant or will need one, and if they happen to listen to this, what should they do? Where should they go? How can they learn more? 
Um, I am always happy to talk to anybody. Um, I can certainly give you my email if you want to include it um, in you your a, show notes. You have a Facebook group um, too, you said? I have. I'm in a, a heart transplant Facebook group, support group. Okay. Uh, but you can also find me on Facebook and write me a message there. Um, I have a, a page for my book, and you can message me through there under uh, Allie Weinberg Barton. That's, um, the book is called Against Doctor's Orders, and it's under my maiden name and married name, Allie Weinberg Barton. Okay. Um, I am more than happy to talk to anybody who's in the process of transplant. I think for me, it was most helpful to talk to someone who had already been through it and to know they were happy, they were healthy, they made it through, they were okay. The absolute hardest time with the transplant is the waiting for the yeah. phone call mm-hmm. and the anticipatory anxiety about when is the call going to come. And that was the most stressful part for me because I am a control freak. I like to have things on my schedule. I like to know when exactly something is <laughs> happening and to just have this open-ended, it could be a tomorrow, it could be six months, it could be any day or time is not cool with me. So that was the hardest part for me. And I... Talk to people about um, afterwards, prednisone can just make you say and do crazy things and you can't really, you, your husband or wife can't believe anything you say on yeah. prednisone and you're going to say mean things. And, you know, so I just try to um, talk to people as much as I can because, like I said, I wish, you know, I did have a few people talk to me before transplant and that did help me tremendously. And I just think that mm. the more we shut down about these things and don't share, it was really nerve wracking to write my book. There was a lot in there that was very personal um, that I knew everybody was going to be reading, my family, my friends. And I just felt I had to put it out there because that, that is the reality. It talked a lot about body image. I had a history of eating disorders and it's been very difficult to feel like I'm in such a different body. And like that, that is my truth. That's my reality. Um, I don't want to shut down and have shame about any of that. And so I think it's just important for people to share their stories and to talk as much as they can about it. Yeah. Well, you're doing amazing work. And it, I think your attitude is just such a huge part of your success. I mean, you really show the power of like being empowered, taking it on. Being positive, you know, you sound like you've just been really, I'm I'm sure you've struggled a lot, but you just sound really positive overall. I try. It's helped a lot. It's helped. And it has helped to have such amazing family and friend support and to have the community receive it so well and to be so supportive and um, really come together and rally for me and and pray. When I was in the hospital, they made a rally for Alley Day and did all these fundraisers so that we could travel to Florida. Um, And so people have been really amazing and praying for our family and being so supportive and helping if I needed to have, you know, I can be in and out of the hospitals. If I get sick, I might need to be hospitalized if I can't hold my meds down. So just having, you know, my best friend has been like a second mom to Ethan, just helping and, you know, she just had her own baby. And so I want to repay her as much as I can, but it's just so nice to have such great support around me for when I need it. And I'm not a person who likes to ask for help and it is very eye opening. You know, you can't lift anything more than 10 pounds after a transplant. You need help going to the bathroom. Sometimes you need help taking a bath. And that was so difficult for me. I am a caretaker. I've always been a caretaker and to have my husband need to wash my back in the back was just like, Oh, I just want to do this myself. I just want to drive myself. But you just kind of have to let go sometimes and let other people help you. And that's big. That's important. It It is. And receiving help is um, mm-hmm. it's a great mm-hmm. kind of spiritual lesson though. Definitely. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. And that can go for autoimmune disease too. If exactly. you're debilitated by already now, it's like you just sometimes need to let go and take help from people and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Excellent, Allie. Well, thank you so much for your time. I just love this story and um, oh. the amazing things you're doing and how it's going to touch so many other people 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for writing back. And I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Elaine. Take care. Thank you for listening to Dr. Karazian's podcast. For interviews, blog posts, online programs, and downloads, please visit drknews.com or search Dr. Karazian on Facebook. You can also find Dr. Karazian's books, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal and Why Isn't My Brain Working, on Amazon.